1: Yo, welcome into the House of L podcast. I am Lawrence Holmes. This episode is is so good because the guest has lived a lot of lives. You're going to enjoy it. And we were able to, to have a conversation that went in a bunch of different directions We are so happy, so happy to bring you this podcast courtesy of our friends at Aurelio's Pizza. I got to tell you, running a very small media company, the lifeblood of which is advertising dollars, Aurelio's has been on my wish list to be partnered with because of how much I love it. From when I, I got introduced to it in high school. When we moved out to Homewood. I was joking with Joe about $5. All you can eat Tuesdays back in the 90s. And how we we finished whatever it is that we were doing at HF. And we'd come over there and we'd eat. Aurelio's pizza out of house and home. It was so great. I'm happy that they are a sponsor of the podcast. So many great locations. Almost 40 in the Chicagoland area. I am partial to Homewood. You can get it out of the old oven there. That's always my recommendation. With Aurelio's, it's the sauce. You know it. They've got the California vine-ripened tomatoes, the fresh, never-frozen dough. It's just good. It's just good pizza. You know it, and I know it. It's delicious. So whether you're out in Frankfurt or you're in Northwest Indiana or you're at the Homewood location or Mokina or South Loop, wherever, get some Aurelio's Pizza this week. Celebrate and get some Aurelio's Pizza this week. It's so good. So I'm so happy that they are on board. I really, really am. Like, it's its a perfect fit for the House of elk podcast because of how much I truly do love Aurelio's Pizza. Aurelio'sPizza.com if you want to check it out. The cheese blend. Oh, it's just good. It's really good. So, yes, go to Aurelio's and, and be like, I heard you on Lawrence's podcast. You guys are awesome. I want more pizza. My order? You wondering what my order is? I'll save that for later on in the podcast. How about that? I'll share it with you later on. All right, to our guest. Sean King played quarterback in the league for a while. A lot of Bears fans know who he is because he was when he was quarterbacking the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, they were in the Bears division. Since then, Sean has worked as an analyst. He's worked as a coach. At the college level, a quarterback coach. Now he works for Vison and he's doing shows for Vison. He was always, even when he was playing or like right after he retired, he used to come on the radio show and hang out with me. And so I hit him up and I was like, man, you, you know, your, your career career's taking a whole bunch of twists and turns. I'd love to talk with you about it. And he was like, no problem. It was another one of these conversations that I thought would go. You know, 20, 25 minutes. The man is busy. I know that. And I'm trying not to eat up everybody's time. But it went longer than that. And he got into some analysis, too. So inside this conversation with Sean, there's plenty here. Like We talk about what it was like to play in the league and how he's part of the fraternity of of black quarterbacks. And we talked about his career. But then when I started to ask him, I threw a couple names at him, some names that you might care about. One, Baker Mayfield, and two, Justin Fields. And he gave some very heartfelt and legit analysis on both guys. So I don't want to hold it up. I want to get to it. Wonderful conversation that I had with Sean King. You're going to love this, I promise. Brought to you by Aurelio's Pizza here on the
0: House of L podcast. Bobby Bowden and Steve Spurrier both offered me full scholarships to Florida and Florida State, but to play safety. Wow. Because back then, you know, if you were six foot one and black and athletic, even if you could throw the ball, I mean, you just didn't have a lot of representation at quarterback in college. And if you were that size, you were running like the triple option or you know, the wishbone or or some one-based scheme. And and so, you know, it's crazy because, like, Charlie Ward had just been there. So, like, I was like, you know, okay, that's what I want to do. But Florida State took Dan Kendra, and Florida took Bobby Sablehouse. And they actually bypassed me and Dante Culpepper that year. Think about that. They went to Pennsylvania for Kendra. And Bobby Sablehouse, I think, was from Maryland. And they had me and Dante Cope in the state of Florida. And, and didn't Dan Kendra shows... end up being a fullback at the end of his career there? Yeah, man. It just shows, you know, how far the game of football has come. You know, from and what was that? 95 would have been, what, a little 20, 27, 28 years?
1: Yeah, 27 years ago. Yeah, so
0: it's progressed so much since then
1: did did you find those offers
0: discouraging uh, i just was always so self-confident because i had always had the support of my mother and father and they just said instilled in me you know your dream is your dream you know don't let anybody else create it don't even let, let anybody else you know put a cap on it and i wanted to play quarterback like i looked at doug williams because i was a big bucks fan and even though he had failed, you know, with the Bucks, I got to see a man of color, you know, playing that position. So I knew it was possible. So I was gonna chase my dream, you know, regardless of what anybody else said. So there were other, you know, schools that that at least on the surface told me I could play football. But Tulane was the one I I could play quarterback, but Tulane was the one that I actually believed. What and made so what made you believe them? Well, I just this is something about uh you know, you know who Tom Shaw is? I do. Yeah, so Tom Shaw was the speed and conditioning coach at Tulane at the time. Man, he was at every game I had that year in high school, I think. And uh, then Buddy Tevins came in. My parents are really big on academics. Of course, he has an Ivy League background. Tulane's a, a highly regarded educational program. You know, uh, and, and so we kind of fell in love with that. Like, it was, I liked to visit. I love New Orleans. But then they had a black quarterback that had played recently at Tulane named Terrence Jones. And so I had seen that school allow, uh, you know, a man of color to play quarterback, and he threw the ball. So I was like, okay, you know, I, could, I the, the, the institution has history. Uh, the coach is believable. The academic component satisfies my parents. The proximity, because you can drive from New Orleans to Tampa in, in 10 hours or you could fly in an hour. So it was close enough where they could get there to support me. So, you know, battle. the way, shout out to my dad. He passed in 2011. How about this, big dog? He never missed a home game in four years. Wow. Made to everyone. So that's that's the stock I come from. So, like, I had, like, that support. So, I mean, like, what I felt like was a mature decision, but it was more about the environment. You know, after having coached college football, you know, all of these young men aren't in that same situation.
1: What did it mean to you to have that type of support in the stands?
0: Well, you didn't really understand it at the time. It just kind of was expected because I'd always had it my whole life. But, you know, once you get to college and you start to see the lack of support some of your teammates have, once you get to the pros and start to see how superficial, you know, support of athletes generally really is, and then when you become a parent of your own, I mean, the – the level of gratification that you have in hindsight, I think always supersedes like that in the moment emotion, you know, especially when you kind of have been accustomed to it.
1: When did you figure out that it wasn't like you, you could play ball beyond Tulane that you could be a pro.
0: Well, in my mind, probably when I was like a teenager, but like (laughs) from my actual on the field production standpoint, it's my junior year when uh, Tommy Bowden took over the program and uh, he actually brought Rich Rodriguez with him from Glenville State to be the OC and I got a chance to do what I did in high school. Because see, Buddy T was a good coach, but we ran a real pro-style set, which everybody did back then. We had a fullback, a tight end, you know, under center every play. you know. And then Tommy came in and we went more shotgun-centric and you know, we kind of started the RPO stuff. We started the zone read stuff, you know, so all the stuff is so prevalent. Right now, you know, my skill set, you know, really fit and mesh with that. And so the success came and, and then I, I started getting some interest and scouts start swooping around and agents start calling. I don't know how they got my number, but I was like, <laughs> okay, <laughs> this, this, thing, this thing might be real. And so, like, by the time I had got to the off season, you know, prior to my senior year, like I had an idea if I went out and balled that that it was going to become a, a reality.
1: And and so you get to live out this dream, like the two thousand season, like what you had done in ninety nine, you 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 would kind of put it out there, hey, I can I can play winning football. Going into the two thousand season, how hyped were you for the opportunity?
0: Well, it's kind of a duality to this answer. And and I don't think a lot of people know this, but like the Bucs were picked to win the Super Bowl my first four years there. But we also changed offensive coordinators my first five years in Tampa. So me as a rookie quarterback coming in on a team that's picked to win the Super Bowl, we have Mike Shula as offensive coordinator. We go to, that was the uh, Bert Emanuel catch. We went to the, the Rams NFC Championship game. Well, they fired Mike Shula after that game and brought in Les Stuckle, and so we go ten and six with Les Stuckle. I'm the full time starter, but we lose in the first round of playoffs to Philly. They fire Les Stuckle. Year three, Clyde Christensen becomes the offensive coordinator. Year four, John Gruden becomes the offensive coordinator. So my first four years in, in my, it was four years my first four years in Tampa, we changed systems. So I spent the entire offseason learning the new system, you know, trying to get comfortable with the new coordinator, how he saw the game, how did it match up with my skill set. So, you know, my offseasons early in my career, that's how they were spent. It was never, you know, let's build upon what we had done the year before and expand the offense and, you know, kind of really self-scout. It was always like this get-to-know-you period, you know, with the coordinator, the personnel, and the scheme.
1: What do you think you took from your time as a player that you wanted to make sure that you didn't do as a coach?
0: Well, the one thing I always never understood, first of all, how difficult success is, how extremely difficult real success is, and how almost impossible winning a championship is. Because, you know, as I mentioned, when I got to Tampa, those expectations were there. Like, we were picked to win the Super Bowl. 99, 2000, 2001, 2002, we finally won it. But when you lose an NFC Championship game as a rookie, your first year in the NFL, you kind of take for granted, you know, how hard it is to even get to that game. And, you know, I always wanted to instill that in my players. Like, don't take any moment for granted. Don't take any practice for granted. Like, don't ever just assume that, whatever's going on now is going to be going on in the future, good or bad. Like, you just always are working to be a better version of you, a better version of us, because we don't know how many chances we're going to get to do this thing. And and when it's over, it's over. Like, I always tell this story, you know, when I'm speaking. I never really retired. The NFL retired me. Mm. (laughs) Like, Tom Brady had a big press conference. You know, he announced his retirement. Like, (laughs) here I was. I was, you know running around, you know, any, any trial I could get, you know, every Tuesday I'm in a different city because that's the day they break in potential free agents during the season, you know, so I didn't get to retire. Now, you know, I, the NFL retired me, and so I just tell them, you know, don't take it for granted, you know, uh, don't leave anything on the table. So, you know, that's what I learned as a player, and I definitely implemented, you know, when I got into coaching.
1: How, how long did you chase the dream? I had a conversation with Spice Adams About this, and he was saying how the year before it was over, over. He said, you know, he 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 didn't mind missing training camp because he really always hated training camp. And then he's like, well, I'm sure they won't put me on a roster because I'm a veteran, so I'll have to be after the first week of the season. Then it got to the end of the season. He's like, well, coaches were telling him that they were going to add him to a team for the playoffs like that sort of thing. So, how long was it before you were like I'm done chasing it?
0: I guess uh I I don't know because it's hard if it's hard for me to I'm, I'm trying to recollect, but see like the one thing that I had always and, and God bless him, RP my agent Eugene Parker, strong strong brother. One of the best and, to uh, ever do it. Yeah, and so once I wasn't the starter you know, me and him had a real conversation and he was like, listen, Sean, I think you should play in the league for another 10 years. He was like, but I'm going to be honest. There's not a lot of minority representation as a backup quarterback. Like most of the the Blacks that play this position in the NFL are starters. So we're going to try and find you some spots. You know, and we went hard after it, you know, for probably about a year and a half. And, you know, then I tried Arena Football League because, you know, the whole Kurt Warner thing had had already happened, and, and so I went there. But after two games, I knew that wasn't like what I was going to do with my life. And, you know, I went to Canada. You know, I was there for eight days, and I got on the phone with Eugene. Yeah, this not it either. No offense to the CFL or Arena. I just knew that wasn't, you know, what I felt like God had in, in store for me. So, you know, Sorry about that. You know, that's okay. One of the things that I had always remembered was uh, Jay Crawford and Sage Steele. Had covered the Bucks while I was playing. They'd always said, "You know, you really should think of getting into broadcasting." And, and it's ironic because it doesn't seem that long ago when this is about two thousand and late two thousand seven, early two thousand eight. No athletes were trying to be broadcasters or analysts on TV. Mm. It wasn't a popular, you know, you know, job. And so I picked up the phone. I called Jay Crawford. He was like, "Man, awesome! I'm so glad you called me." ESPN flew me to New York I stayed in the Radisson Times Square I went and did a show filmed out of the New Yorker hotel called cold pizza
1: I remember cold
0: pizza yeah and so I loved it uh they thought I did a great job uh, I went and interviewed a bunch of agents in that business and sector and I chose a guy more ghostfriend he was a vision sports at the time and Next thing I know, I signed a three year deal with ESPN. And I was in my mind, Lawrence, like, man, this is phenomenal. I get paid what? And I get to go to New York. And all I have to work is a couple hours a day out of the New Yorker hotel. I mean, it was the best job ever for six months. And then they moved Cold Pizza back to Bristol, Connecticut and rebranded it into what's now First Take. And it became okay. I'm in the building now, so you're on the Sports Center that morning. You're on Mike and Mike. You're on First Take. Then you're doing NFL Live, <laughs> in the Late Sports Center. And I was like, okay, they're going to let earn this money now. I see. And it went from being in New York City to being in Bristol, Connecticut. <laughs> but again, I mean, it's such a great learning experience. I had a lot of fun doing it. Um, I learned a lot and you get to talk football for a living. So, I mean, it's great, but it's just amazing how, you know, that whole, you know, little, I guess, time period elapsed and, you know, me thinking what being in television was initially to what it really is, which is really a grind. You know, when you're on live TV, you know, seven, eight, nine hours a day, you gotta be, you know, on point.
1: People joke about the the ESPN car wash. That's what you just described. Yeah, like you got to—that's what it is. You got to go through the car wash, fella. You got to be on every show, and you got to you got to make sure that you get that energy right and everything else. Um. So so I feel like you've been in this case, and you know, an athlete that saw what was going on with broadcasting. I think you've been ahead of the game in a couple different aspects, and the stuff that you're doing at Visa now. I feel like that that's ahead of the game too. Getting into the the sports betting lane, what convinced you that that was the the road to to go forward?
0: Well, I've always tried to stay in front, you know, as you just mentioned, and, and you know when I got a call from um, from Visa, it, it was extremely interesting because I remember when I got to ESPN, you know, I got in trouble one time because I'm a huge Tampa Bay Rays fan, and I was on Sports Center. And I wanted to have a Tampa Bay Rays hat on. And I put the Tampa Bay Rays hat on. But because they're so Yankee Red Sox centric, like they really were upset. And I put the Rays hat on and I was talking about, man, listen, the Rays on the side, back my squad, you would be happy and get rich. <laughs> like <laughs> it was like taboo. To like even discuss it and now you look at espn and they have the daily wager and you know ever uh, on college game day and everybody's talking about you know the spread and and how it impacts or affects the game so you know having a chance to to kind of tie in my experiences as a college player on a really good undefeated football team as a super bowl champion Professional football player as a broadcaster that's worked at ESPN and NBC Sports and Yahoo and as a Division One football coach for four years at University of South Florida. I just think I bring a unique perspective because sports gambling at the highest levels is almost all analytics. It's almost all metrics. Like the the guys that people call sharks, those guys are volume betters. Like they're putting in, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars to make. $10,000, $11,000, $12,000 $10,000, 11000 $12,000 a day, and that kind of thing. So I kind of bring, I think, a unique mixture because everybody's not trying to do it for a living. You know, some people want to just find spots. Mm-hmm. You know, like, you're still in Chicago, right? I am. Right. So you want to know, like, okay, if I think Justin Fields is ready to have a big game based on me having played quarterback, having coached quarterbacks, understanding the strengths and weaknesses of the opponent that they're playing, you know, based on what Chicago has from a health standpoint, you know, you want to hear that because you might only be interested in betting, you know, that Chicago Bears game, or it might be some other tidbit that I'll give. And so as I'm learning more and more and becoming an expert on the other side, the analytical side, I bring like that experience factor to, you know, I think it's a very unique perspective. And we did really good. During the NFL, you know, uh, I'm killing hockey. My alter ego on the show is Puck Stradamus. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I actually gave out uh, Arkansas Moneyline. They beat Gonzaga outright. I actually gave out St. Peter's Moneyline, my best play of the college basketball season over Purdue. So we've been making people some money. So that, that always makes people happy and makes them want to tune in.
1: Well, that, that's a really good idea. And I, I know a lot of the people over at Visa and, and and now my man Dave Ross is out there working. And I,
0: yeah, man, I love D. Ross.
1: Man, I adore him. I absolutely adore him. He's a really, really good dude. Um, since you brought up Justin Fields and I got you here, uh,
0: what, what do you think of the young man? Well, I think he was overdrafted. And let me put context on that. I'm happy for these young quarterbacks because I want them to make as much money as they can. But when you're drafted, Mitchell Trubisky is a perfect example. Justin Fields is a perfect, perfect example. The expectations of the fan base when you're a first-round quarterback are different than if you're a second, third-round quarterback. And if you're not ready to perform at that expectation level, it can make your development very shaky. Because you got to understand, most of these kids are coming from very uh, let's sheltered environments, let's call it that the local media in college isn't going to criticize a kid for playing a bad game. You know, the fan base at most colleges isn't going to criticize a kid for playing a bad game. But the Bears fan base, because that's what we're talking about right now, when you go out and play a bad bad game, you're going to hear about it. the media that's responsible for covering the Bears. they They get paid to be honest. And, like, when you are thrown too much too fast, it can ruin you. Like, when you really look at Mitchell Trubisky's career in Chicago, it wasn't terrible for a young quarterback. But all that he ever heard was, we traded up and drafted you over Patrick Mahomes and
1: Deshaun, Deshaun
0: Watson. So he never got a fair opportunity to really be a young quarterback. He inherited a defense and it just added Khalil Mack. And people thought it was a Super Bowl caliber. He never got a chance to be a young quarterback, to be a Peyton Manning and go out and throw 26 interceptions and nobody cared. And so it's hard for a young quarterback to develop under that kind of pressure. Now, Justin Fields, new head coach, new GM, not a lot of expectations. So he'll get a chance to develop if they think highly of Justin Fields. Now the issue becomes he was a Matt Nagy decision. He wasn't the current regime's choice, selection. I know they inherited him, and to get a job, you'll say anything. If you think the only thing between you becoming a new head coach and GM of the Bears is telling the people you're in front of interviewing that you believe in Justin Fields, you're going to say, I believe in Justin Fields. But what were your conversations last year at draft time? What were your evaluations of Justin Fields then when you weren't a part of the Chicago Bears organization? Because that's really – to determine how much patience they have with Justin.
1: When it comes to young quarterbacks, and, and you can use Justin as an example if you want, what are things that they're being coached to do at the high school and college level that you think is great, and what's some stuff at the high school and college level that you wish more quarterbacks that were going to the league or have league potential were working on?
0: I think the one thing that kind of has created, like, the elite unique talents we have like josh allen's not traditional patrick mahomes is not traditional lamar jackson is not traditional like these guys are a byproduct of how the game of football has evolved because when you're in that high school you know most college level guys aren't really preaching fundamentals as much as they're preaching success so if a quarterback has creativity you know, he continued to be successful and and accomplish things, you know, on a grander scale than when it used to be, you know, all three, five, seven-step drops, stay in the pocket, you know, climb in the pocket, you know, the traditional football like it used to be. Like, it was frowned upon to, you know, have a quarterback that could utilize his legs or have a quarterback that you know, extended plays and ran around. He just didn't see it a lot. So I think that's a good thing. The bad thing is I think there are very few people in this country that can walk into a quarterback room and have four different personality, skill sets, and ability levels and get all four guys better. Mm. And so I think that's where a lot of these guys really struggle. Like the thing I hated about the Andy Dalton pickup last year was Andy Dalton and Justin Fields, their games aren't similar. So Justin Fields can't really learn anything from Andy Dalton because he doesn't play the same type of game that Andy Dalton plays. You know, so putting a young quarterback in a room with the veteran quarterback that has a completely different skill set and plays the position a completely different way doesn't really help him. And so now what's happened is most of the guys coaching quarterbacks in the National Football League and in college, most of the guys that are coordinating the offense in the National Football League and college don't know anything about developing quarterbacks. All they know is system. All they know is scheme. So now the entire conversation in the quarterback room is, okay, when well we go blast, why bunch right, up counter motion, 72 crisscross, why swing X out? Listen, if we get some kind of under front, we think we're going to get field pressure. We want to get to 98 bunch crunch. But if we got a look where well, you think that free safety is creeping, you think something's coming from, you know, the boundary, then let's go 200 jet smoke. They never, ever talk about control your breathing. Let's be intentional when we throw the ball. Ball location is what matters. You can never go broke taking a profit. Every deep ball that's overthrown and throwing a bounce is incomplete. Throwing the ball away is not going to lose the game. Taking a sack sometimes wins the game. Like all of these things that are functional, once the game starts, no one talks to the quarterback about it. It's all system, all system, all system. All system. I'm telling you, if I ever could get Baker Mayfield, I could turn Baker Mayfield into a Hall of Fame quarterback.
1: Why do you think that?
0: Well, because see, all he needs to do is, first of all, identify the fact that he has an identity crisis. which I would be very good at assuring him every day of that. Because every day he walks in, I'm saying, you're not Aaron Rodgers. You're Baker Mayfield. You're more Drew Brees than you are Lamar Jackson. You know? And then I would make a complete cut-up of all of his incompletions, all of his completions that I thought should have been incompletions, mean bad ball location, and all of his turnovers. And they all start with the fact that his lower body is completely, fundamentally unsound. And he's unsound when it's unnecessary. And it's kind of like well, the question you asked before, when I was talking about how i you kind of get these Josh Allen patching my holes because – when they're growing up, they let them be creative and kind of the success of the play is more important than the process. But then you get the Baker Mayfields who don't have the arm talent of Patrick Mahomes and Josh Allen. Or the size. Who afford, right, who can't afford to be off balance all the time, throwing the ball sidearm and falling away instead of stepping into the throw. He needs to be Drew Brees. I would make a full Drew Brees cut up and everything he did, I put what it's all Brees did. And if you ever want to be in the Hall of Fame, if you want to be potentially a Super Bowl champion, if you want to play in this league for a long time, your game needs to start looking like Drew Brees because that's what your skill set is. Arm talent, size, slightly more athletic, but not by much. That's who he's got to mimic. But he's the number one pick in the draft, overdrafted, has all the -the off-the-field commercials. So that creates this sense of entitlement, I guess you could call it, uh, coupled with immaturity that makes you unaware of what's really happening. And that's how you get to where they're at in Cleveland now. When the organization has been moved on internally, you just haven't realized it. What you said about Breeze, what I, what
1: I find amazing about him when I watch tape of him, because I've stood next to Drew. I'm I'm a small dude. I'm 5'9", on a good day, 5'9 nine and i I've stood next to Drew, and I'm like, he's not that much bigger than me. But what I'm always amazed by is that when he would throw the ball on the release, he's using every bit of his six feet. That it's mm-hmm. it's sometimes him on his tiptoes almost, like throwing the ball. And I was I'm amazed that you're right. I wish that more quarterbacks were looking at cut ups of that guy. Now, obviously he had incredible accuracy, maybe the most accurate quarterback in in the history of the league. But just fundamentally saying, let me use every piece of what I have to win. Trying to convince quarterbacks to do that, I—it I, seems like it's a hard thing to do.
0: Yep, because they all want to be Mahomes. They all want to throw the ball sidearm, and you know they want to run to their left and throw the ball all the way back across the field. And you know then when it's a clean pocket, they're so unaccustomed to being fundamentally sound, they throw a flat route into the dirt on third and three when because they're not actually trying to hit anything they aren't being intentional like I always tell quarterbacks when you miss a throw you know what did you miss were you trying to hit the outside number were you trying to hit the bottom portion of the inside number were you trying to hit the middle of the face mask when we throw into the right screw in the helmet like you missed because you weren't trying to actually target and hit anything And, and so that's what happens it gets so much about scheme that they, these quarterbacks make unforced errors because they haven't been taught how to actually be intentional with the football. Like I would tell my quarterbacks all the time: Listen, you're gonna make some bad decisions, but whatever decision you make, there's nobody in the stadium but you and the guy you're throwing the ball to. Because a great throw can make up for a bad decision. I was like, you got to be able to block out everything when that when you can let that ball go, man. Hey, nothing else matters. It's you and the guy you're throwing the ball to.
1: I don't know how much Justin Fields tape you've crushed, but I'm curious. What what advice would you offer him?
0: Well, the first thing I, I would tell Justin Fields: you can't walk in a building looking like ten dollars and think they're gonna pay you ten million. And I would be talking about how he plays quarterback. Your body language is bad, so I just make a cut up of Justin looking like he's pouting, like his energy is off, like his confidence isn't right. And I would say to Justin, would you follow this person? Would you let this person lead you? And his answer, if he's honest, is gonna be no. I was like, so that's the first thing we could change because that's the easiest. We got to show up in practice and if we don't like, if we don't want to be there, fake it. I was like, in the grand scheme of things, I mean, uh, we get to play football for a living, right? This is a once in a lifetime opportunity. You're never going to get the benefit of the doubt because of what you look like. So we have to change the narrative. You've got to be a high energy guy. You've got to be a guy that's positive. you got to be a guy that people gravitate to like, this is how we're going to get better. And then we start working on his fundamentals because it's got the arm talent and it's got the athletic ability to be really special, but his body language is terrible. And when your body language is terrible, it's very hard to be productive. You know, it's one of the issues with James Harden. You know, James Harden may be a great guy, but when you watch him play basketball, there are times when you look at James Harden and say, man, he don't really want to be out there, do we? Like, he must have had a bad day. and He must have something going on. When I watch Justin Fields from afar, I get that feeling way too much. And so that would be the first thing I would change.
1: I don't want to just just squeeze the orange for all of your quarterback breakdown. I do want to talk about you and and where you are in like the the black quarterback legacy and fraternity. We seem to be in a golden age right now for black quarterbacks. What's it like for you to be part of that lineage?
0: Well, it makes me happy, you know, I'm all about progress. you know I'm all about opportunity. you know, I'm also all about. The development of both sides of the coin. And as happy as I am with the growth that the NFL has made, I still want more from the younger quarterbacks. I I want more awareness about where they're at and where the league is trying to go and how important it is for them to represent themselves in the proper way, in my opinion just be good people, do the right thing, work your butt off, have great energy, love life, because a lot of people sacrifice before you for you to have this opportunity. And so take full advantage of it. You know, uh, I think Russell Wilson has done a great job on that. You know, Lamar Jackson, like there were people saying Lamar Jackson should have played wide receiver. And yet all you see is Lamar continuing to work, continuing to work, continuing to work. And, And I like that. And, uh, Keep football first. And, and that may sound weird to some people, but what you have to understand is football is probably the least tenured of all of the major professional sports. Like, if a guy makes the NBA, I mean, he's probably going to play, even if he has to go to Europe or G League or something, he's probably going to play for the next 15 years. You know, if he's an NBA caliber player at one point, you know? In, in baseball, you know, you've got you know, guys can make the big leagues. You know, in their early thirties, mid thirties. But in the football, it's the NFL or bust for the most part. Like none of these other leagues have really been able to sustain themselves. You know, they've kind of come and gone for different reasons. So when you're there, man, you got to take full full advantage of that opportunity, because there is no American fallback.
1: When you see what's happened with the Tampa Bay Bucks, especially now the Todd Bowles. Is is the head coach, and I thought uh I I'm, I appreciate Bruce. Bruce was real slick with it. He he set it up so his man could get that job, and and I appreciate that. When you see they got Tom Brady coming back, and now Todd Bowles has got an opportunity to be a head coach. What do you see?
0: Well, if nothing else is taken from this interview, L, I hope that this is really focused on. I want to give Bruce as his flowers while he's still living. Because I hear so many white men in Bruce's position that talk the talk, but there are no actions behind those words. Bruce has more minorities, meaning men of color and women, on his staff in Tampa than anybody else in the National Football League. And that's saying a lot. Bruce is one of the few guys that has a black offensive coordinator, black assistant head coach, black defensive coordinator. So he walks the walk.
1: Black special and teams coach too?
0: Black, black special teams coach, yes. He's walking the walk. And they won a Super Bowl. So all these other organizations don't tell me that it can't be done It does not qualified people. Just be honest and say you just choose not to do it. And so I want to acknowledge that that should be Bruce Aaron's legacy, that he was a man that did what others wouldn't not what they couldn't, what others wouldn't. And I respect him so much because he wasn't going to retire if Brady didn't come back because he didn't want to leave Coach Bowles in a position where, okay, you're working with Blaine Gabbert and Kyle Trask. No offense to Blaine Gabbert and Kyle Trask, but, you know, with the success Tampa's had with Tom Brady, I mean, that's a significant drop-off. So now that Brady's back, the team is stabilized, they got Chris Godwin locked up, added a gauge from Atlanta. You know, more than likely, Gronkowski is going to come back. It makes sense. And I also want to extend this recognition to the Glazier family. You know, Lawrence, this is the fourth African-American head coach since the Glazers have been the owners of the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. That is two more than any other organization in the National Football League has ever had. Tony Dungy. Raheem Morris, Lovey Smith, and now Todd Bowles. So I want to acknowledge the fact that the Glazers are putting actions behind those words as well. Now the only caveat of that is I think Mike Tomlin is uh, takes up thirty three percent of the entire coaches <laughs> in the history <laughs> in, the, in the history in the history of
1: Pittsburgh. <laughs> <laughs> right, you got a dude that's been there for two
0: decades in one spot right. holding it down <laughs> Right But to the other 30 organizations I mean, the fact that the Glazers really have not owned the Bucks for long, when you look at some of the teams or some of the other ownership groups I think they need to be acknowledged for being at the front of this diversity you know, issue in the National Football League And I don't think a lot of people know that So make sure you promote that Bucks, fourth blackhead coach in the history of the team, all under the Glaciers. And that's two more than any other organization in the National Football League. You
1: think you'll ever get back into coaching?
0: Uh let me first tell you what I got out of coaching. Okay. Uh I left. Well, I left NBC Yahoo. I just signed a new three year deal. I got a call from uh, the head coach of USF at the time, Willie Taggart. And uh, it was, was kind of out of the blue. I, I hadn't been thinking about coaching. He was like, I have a, a young quarterback here, Quentin Flowers. And, man, I think the world of this kid, I need somebody that can coach him. You know, I've heard what you've been doing, you know, with quarterbacks and stuff, which is interesting. And I wasn't really interested, to be honest. You know, I was – because I just signed a new deal. But then it was like, okay, I get to go back to Tampa because it's USF. So I'm living in Tampa anyway. And so I go back. Uh, I, I get Quentin Flowers. He wins college, he wins conference player of the year, my first year with him. He turns into this spectacular, probably best quarterback in USF history. I mean in USF history. And not that he wasn't already talented, but I helped him refine that talent and focus and be consistently able to play at a high level. And since that year, Lawrence. I haven't been able to get a quarterback coaching job or OC coaching job in college football. Mm. Because Charlie Strong came in. Willie Taggart took the Oregon job. Charlie Strong came in from Texas. He bought Sterling Gilbert, the OC. Sterling wanted to coach the quarterback, so I got moved to running backs. And, you know, just there are very few black quarterback coaches or black OCs. In FBS football. And so I just kind of got soured with that. So I decided to come back to broadcasting. Mm. How hard was that for you? It was hard because I really enjoy helping the kids. You know, I really did. You know, I think that they need. Black men like me on those staffs but they need black men like me on those styles in a position where our voice matters a little more. Because when you're a running back coach, you know, everybody can overrule you from a title standpoint, no matter what you accomplished, you know, in in the NFL, they almost look down on that in college, (laughs) you know, and those kids need it. You know, when you look at this transfer portal, you know, I know it incites a lot of fan bases because they feel like, okay, we got this kid from... Like, I don't know what Illinois is doing in the transfer portal, but if they get an old liner from Wisconsin and a, a running back from Florida State and a receiver from Oklahoma like that fan base, it's like, you know, okay, boom, we're about to take this next jump. So it's exciting. But from the development standpoint of the young men, what are we teaching them? It's hard to keep them accountable if they could just leave. It's hard to create real discipline if they could just leave you know it's hard to really understand the actual virtue of what true competition is. If I could just leave, coach don't like me. He tripping. So from a life goal and life lesson standpoint, what do we sacrifice for that kind of freedom?
1: Okay, so there's a guy who played quarterback in the league who coaches quarterbacks. There's what he had to say about the Bears QB. I ordinarily don't like body language talk. But I understand where he's coming from. He's not looking at it as just a function of what happens inside the game, but also how it reflects out further. And he thinks that that Justin has got all the raw tools. Let's talk about some some of the more stuff. I was blown away and this is the it's the sauce. Like, let's get at it. It's the sauce. The sauce of that interview brought to you by Aurelio's Pizza. Go get Aurelio's. You know you want to. You can smell it right now. It smells delicious. Aurelio'spizza.com. Find a location near you for delicious pizza. Him talking about Baker Mayfield as a potential Hall of Famer with the right coaching behind him. I thought was fascinating because it seems like we are in a place where the entire league has given up on Baker Mayfield. The insult to him is Cleveland letting it leak that he's not mature enough to be their quarterback and then immediately signing Deshaun Watson. If you're Baker Mayfield, that feels terrible. It feels awful. They don't think that you're mature enough. Meanwhile, the guy that they bring in to replace you has 23 pending civil lawsuits against him for inappropriate touching and whatnot. On top of them having him replace you, he also got... The biggest guaranteed contract that a quarterback has ever gotten. Which doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. Considering the civil lawsuit. They changed the way. If you didn't know, like the way that this contract is written too. They've made it so if he is suspended, the financial burden for him in year one is not that big a deal. They've kind of circumvented the idea of it financially handicapping Deshaun Watson if he were be to be suspended. By the way, I can't imagine he won't be suspended. You look at some of the precedent. You look at Adrian Peterson. Obviously, Ben Roethlisberger is, is kind of a spot-on comp. I can't imagine that he won't be, but the, the NFL, NFL teams must have gotten some indication from the league on what it is they were thinking about doing because as soon as there was no more, there was no criminal charges that were levied against him, the teams couldn't wait to to jump to bring Deshaun Watson on. So we shall see. But, yeah, I, I enjoyed Sean, like, breaking all of that stuff down and letting us know what he thought about quarterbacks around the league. And I'm, I'm glad that, he, that he's found a place. It's clear to me, I don't know if it was clear to you, but it is clear to me that the man wants to coach. But he feels like he hasn't been given a, a, a real opportunity to, to do it. I'd love to see him follow that. But it's hard to pass up this good money to just talk. When They're giving away good money for you to just talk. You can't beat that. What's the song say? Can't beat that with a baseball bat? And then the other song, like peanut butter jelly with a baseball bat. But that's a whole other thing for another day that's where we'll leave things. I'm glad that you checked out this episode, and I hope that you check out some of the rest of the episodes that are available to you. Our catalog is voluminous. This podcast goes back almost four years now. So you should go back and look and see if I've talked to some people that you want me to talk to. You might be like, has Cap ever been on Lawrence's podcast? Yes, he has. Just a few months ago, as a matter of fact, and the episode is amazing. You'd be surprised the people that have been on this. So keep scrolling through. Show some love to our guys at Sports Jason as well. Their last episode about what happened at the Oscars is hilarious and thoughtful at the same time. You should check it out. Thanks to all of our sponsors that help us continue to bring you... Our work is much appreciated. Thanks for Aurelios. This is their official first episode that they've jumped on. Aurelios.com. It's the sauce. I'm, I'm on my way to go get one out of the old oven right now. You should join me. I will talk to you next time. Hey.